evening to you. Please be seated. Let's turn to the book of Psalms, Psalm 89 tonight, Sunday night, through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Come tonight to Psalm 89. If you're with us this evening and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with more Bibles than they need, and uh, they'd love to get one into your hands. If you just wave to them, and that way you can hear the Word of God tonight and then also read along with your own eyes and allow the Word to have the double impact that God wants it to have in your life. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, please make that a Bible that gift, that Bible, a gift from the Lord to you uh, tonight. What we call Psalm uh, 89 is a psalm that was uh, is written by the psalmist while he's in the midst of a great confusion, and uh, and the confusion that he is facing is that he is in the middle of a circumstance that he is convinced violates one of God's promises to him. So his, he's shaken, and we're going to see how shaken he is because he looks at God's promises from his word, he looks at his circumstance, and it looks like God has failed him and failed the nation of Israel in keeping one of his promises. Well, I'll tell you, for a child of God, a child doesn't get any deeper than that, really, because you're really hitting the one area in life where we think, okay, we have confidence here, we're unshakable in terms of God being faithful to his promises. And then if and when we hit those times in our lives where it looks like, oh, this my circumstance is such that it is going to be, uh, my life will be the one that is, uh, is the first one that ever disproves a promise of God. And that co- uh, conviction or that feeling and a deep kind of difficult circumstance in life can be very, very strong. He feels it. And it's uh, interesting. And I think that many of us will feel it and at one time or another in our Christian lives. And the lesson from the psalm is very important. Important to understand also the context of it. He apparently writes this psalm following a great a military defeat of Israel, uh, either by uh, one of the pharaohs of Egypt, or he could very well be writing it following uh, the crushing defeat of Israel and the deportation of the southern kingdom of Judah to Babylon by the Babylonians. But a terrible, terrible defeat has occurred, and the defeat has uh, uh, stopped the uh, lineage of uh, David's lineage sitting on the throne as the king, uh, kings of Israel. And we're going to see in just a moment where he brings forth to God, he reminds God of one of his promises, and that is his promise to David that uh, his throne in terms of uh, the king over Israel, that that would be an everlasting kind of, of throne, that a descendant of his would always kind of rule over the nation of Israel. And when this king is defeated and he is deported, or uh, th- then it looks like God's uh, promise has been proven false, and so his faith is shaken here. So he says, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. And so uh, even in what he's in the middle of, he can, the one thing we can always sing of is the Lord's mercies. We can do it forever because they're always there for us. And with my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. He said, I have made a covenant with my chosen, and this is God now speaking through the psalmist. It's God's promise to David. I've made a covenant with my chosen, that is David. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish uh, forever and build up your throne to all generations. And God had promised to David in 2 Samuel chapter 17, Verse 16, that God would establish his throne forever, which David properly understood to mean uh, that God would bring the Messiah into the world as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that the Messiah would ultimately come into the world through his bloodline. And the passage in Second Samuel 
reads like this, And your house, God speaking uh, through the prophet to David, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you, and your throne shall be established forever. And, of course, this promise to David uh, it will ultimately and finally be fulfilled in Jesus' second coming when he rules and he reigns uh, over, uh, over the whole world from Jerusalem during that thousand-year uh, reign of Christ. And so it was an unconditional and uh, eternal promise given to David, and the psalmist uh, quotes God as, as quoting that, uh, that promise to uh, David. And then he be, the, the psalmist begins to uh, praise the Lord before he gets to his complaint. And the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the saints. For who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? And the speaking about angels. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. And he continues his praise of the Lord for his ruling over nature and ruling over uh, creation and over human history now in verse 8. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you, uh, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You have broken Rahab, which is an ancient uh, word uh, name for Egypt, in pieces as one who is slain. You have scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all of its fullness, you have founded them. The north and the south, you've created them. Tabor and Hermon, these are mountains in Israel, great mountains in Israel. They rejoice in your name, uh, being a part of his creation. You have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, and high is your right hand. And the right hand, for most of us, are right-handed, so it's, it's, arm, it's our arm of strength. And so when it talks about the right arm of God or the right hand of God is talking about his power and his strength. And then he goes on to praise the Lord for his righteousness and his justice and his mercy and his truth, his character. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all day long, and in your righteousness they are exalted, for you are the glory of their strength, and in your favor our horn or our power. A horn is a symbol of power in the Old Testament. And uh, in, your, in your favor our horn is exalted, for our shield belongs to the Lord and our King to the Holy One of Israel. We're strong, God because of you. And then he uh, starts to get closer to his subject matter when he begins to praise the Lord now for his uh, God, for his choice of David as a king over Israel. Then you spoke in a vision to your Holy One and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from my people. I have found my servant David. With my holy oil I have anointed him with whom my hand shall be established. Also my arm shall strengthen him. And so uh, the psalmist praised the Lord. David is long uh, gone off of the scene by the time these problems are, are going on. And, and um, in terms of Israel's history, but he's, he, he's grateful for David. And, of course, uh, who wouldn't be the blessings of that reign and the blessings of his character? And then he, pra- he praises the Lord for uh, not only choosing David as king, but also for 
uh, blessing David, the promises he gave to David. The enemy shall not outwit him, nor the sons of wickedness afflict him. And so just speaking of, uh, of the wisdom that God and the strength that God gave to David and David's whole life was a testimony of those things. God said, I will beat down his foes before his face and plague those who hate him. And that characterized David's life. And then in verse 24, uh, God, the psalmist speaks of God uh, promising to keep his covenant with David. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and in my name his horn, that is his power, shall be exalted. And I will also, I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. In other words, God said, I'm going to expand his kingdom, and the Lord did. And he shall cry to me, speaking now of the relationship between David and God, he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And then also I will make him my firstborn and the highest of the kings of the earth. And so he captures the beauty of the relationship between uh, David and the Lord. And then the Lord, speaking again about his uh, uh, promise to be, the, the psalmist speaking of God's promise to be faithful to keep his covenant to David, verse 28, my mercy I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm with him. In other words, the promise that God made to David that the, the Messiah would come through his, his bloodline and that he would have a king that would be uh, the ruler over, over Israel, uh, that every king over Israel would come from his bloodline. That was an unconditional uh, promise to the Lord. And his seed I will make to endure forever and his throne as the days of heaven. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take away from him nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant with David will never break nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne is the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. And so God's promise uh, will endure. His promise to David will endure as long as the uh, the stars and and the moon and the sun exist. And then the psalmist comes finally in verse 38 to his uh, confusion, and he uh, want, begins to express this confusion. So he reminds God of the promises that he made to David, and um, and then and then he's going to kind of speak about the failure of, uh, of one of the kings to be defeated, to be deported probably, and now this, this line of kings under David has been interrupted, and so, God, what about uh, your promises? And so this is what he's, uh, he's facing, uh, you know, in terms of his confusion. Now, uh, God had uh, made a promise, of course, to David, and we know uh, from the Bible that despite the promises that God made to David here, uh, that his dynasty was interrupted by the Babylonian captivity. There ceased to be kings in his bloodline that were over, uh, over the nation of Israel and over Judah because essentially they had ceased to exist uh, as they had existed uh, previously. Uh, but the fact that that... Uh, king over Israel will one day be restored. There hasn't been a king from David's line since the Babylonian captivity, but there is a future king that is coming, and that is Jesus himself from David's bloodline who will once again be a king uh, over the Jews. And so the promise that God made to David was that uh, the line or the house, the lineage of the house of David will always be the royal line of uh, Israel. 
and that the right to rule, to be a king over Israel, would always belong to David's offspring, and the right to a literal earthly kingdom would never be taken away from David's lineage. But the thing that's important to realize about God's promise is that promise that he made to David does never guaranteed that the rule by David's uh, posterity or by his descendants, there was never the promise given that it would never be interrupted. It was just that no one will, the only one that who will ever sit as a God-recognized king over Israel will be a descendant of David. And again, the ultimate fulfillment of this is going to come at the second coming uh, when Jesus returns to rule over the whole world, but rule over his people, the Jews, as well. And so now he accuses in verse 38 the Lord of unfaithfulness. He says, but you, now here's the promise that you made, but you have cast off and abhorred. You have been furious with your anointed. You have renounced the covenant of your servant, and you have profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. You've broken down all his hedges. You've brought his strongholds to ruin. All who pass by the way plunder him. He is a reproach to his neighbors, and you have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all of his enemies rejoice. So whatever king was reigning at this time has been defeated, been uh, deposed, and this is the result of, of that defeat. He's been removed from from being the king, and and the guy's head is spinning because it looks like, God, how can this fit with your word? And you have also turned back the edge of his sword and have not sustained him in battle. You have made his glory cease and cast his throne down to the ground, and the days of his youth you have shortened, and you have covered him with shame. Now, this is quite an accusation that he makes uh, against the Lord, and uh, and it's actually uh, very what he is saying to the Lord here is very, very, very disrespectful toward the Lord. I mean, he's really lost it in terms of what he's accusing the Lord of. God, you made the promise, and now you didn't keep that promise. That's the accusation that he's making. God, you're not true to your word. The interesting thing to me is that God allows this accusation, allows the psalm to be included in his book. And why would he do that? And I think that he does that because Ethan, who is the author of the psalm, isn't the last one of God's people to not only be confused by their circumstances in the light of uh, God's promises in his word, uh, but then they go well beyond confusion into saying things that are disrespectful uh, toward the Lord. And so that happens. A person can be so confused and so convinced in, in their moment in time that, God, you didn't come through, you didn't do it, you weren't faithful to your promises. And that kind of a feeling and that kind of an experience between God and His children, it's not right but it's real and it happens. And so God puts it in, in, in the book so that if you're, if you're experiencing something like that tonight or you experience something like that in your walk with the Lord in the future, tempted by your circumstances to think that God has failed you and you want to hurl the accusation of unfaithful to the Lord or call him a liar or something like that in, in the carnality, and uh, then it's important to remember this psalm and to remember the lesson related to the psalm. Notice in verse uh, 46, he continues with his prayer. We'll get to the lesson in just a moment. He says, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? Remember my time, how short my time is, and what futility have you created all the children of, of, of men. And so he reminds God of the shortness of his life 
And um, so he continues to pray even though he is confused, reminds God of the shortness of his life. In other words, God, if you're going to salvage your reputation for being faithful to your word, uh, you better do it soon because I think I'm going to die in this whole thing uh, as well. And so he ought to get, uh, get to work on it. The, the great mistake that the psalmist makes and and the reason for his confusion is not because God has failed him. His problem is short-sightedness. God does not keep his promises uh, within the narrow framework of the immediate related to our lives. Just because a promise of God looks like is being violated or he is not being um, faithful to that at the moment, that doesn't mean that he isn't going to be faithful to it as things unfold. And so God uh, works uh, out of a much longer timeline than our timelines. And that's very important to remember. Sometimes we look and say, God has, he hasn't kept his promise to me in this situation, and then two days go by, two weeks go by, two months go by, and then we see what God was up to all along. He keeps his promise, and it is so outrageously excellent and so much better than anything I could have dreamed of that I thank him for overlooking my impatience and uh, sifting my prayers through his will and disregarding all of my counsel and doing the thing that he had intended to do all along. I, I remember hearing many years ago a story about George Mueller, and he's one of the great uh, men of faith in the history of, uh, of the church. And he began to pray for five of his friends. And after uh, many months, one of them came to know the Lord. And then 10 years later, two others came to know the Lord. And it took 25 years before the fourth one came to know uh, the Lord. He continued to pray for them for 52 years. These five friends never gave up hope that they would all accept the Lord. And then he died. But what he could not know is that that fifth friend came to know the Lord almost immediately after the death of George Mueller. So there may be things that happen in our lives where we don't see the fulfillment of the promise before we go to heaven, but God will keep the promise even after we're gone. And, and so this, this lengthened timeline that we have to understand that God is working with, He's not nearly as impatient as, as we are. He's doing a lot more things at the same time than, uh, than we think, uh, sometimes give him credit for and think that his you know, greatest concern is to bail me out of my current difficulty, uh, whatever the cost, uh, to his larger plan, and God doesn't do that. But the, the psalm closes in a beautiful uh, expression of faith, and the psalmist uh, cries out to him, um, Well, let me just go back to 49. Did I, do four, did I read 49? No, I didn't do that. You know, the, you go to Israel, and this is what I've got to do now. Uh, the, the rabbis, what they do is they've got these little metal uh, finger pointer. It's like a little orchestra thing like this or something. But it's got a little hand with a finger on it, and they just put it right there where they stop. So that, and it points to the verse, and then they just move it so they can remember that. He says in verse 49, before we get to the end, thank you for uh, coaching me. Lord, where are, where are your former loving kindnesses, which you swore to David in your truth? Remember, Lord, the reproach of your servants, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. And then he closes with this uh, closing praise. Blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen 
and amen. So he casts aside his confusion uh, for the moment, and he makes his last word to the Lord to be praise uh, to him. And so this is the circumstance that he's in, and that was the concern that he had. God has not kept his promise. Now we look at it and say, well, was his concern legitimate? Was God's promise uh, that any king that would be recognized by God over Israel would come from the lineage of David. God is faithful to that promise. And uh, was, he, uh, was God's promise to bring the Messiah into the world through the bloodline of King David, was that in any jeopardy at all by the circumstances of the, the defeat of this king? No, it wasn't at all. But all he could see was right there in that moment. He couldn't see this bigger, more wondrous thing that God was uh, doing. And so God has kept his promise through the Lord. The key word in the psalm is the word faithfulness. It's repeated over and over again. It's in verse 1, verse 2, verse 5, verse 8, verse 24, verse 33. And the idea is that the psalm is intended to communicate that God will always be faithful to every single one of his promises. In the New Testament, we're told that they are concerning his promises, that they are always yea, yes, and amen, which means so be it, uh, that's the truth. So again, his problem was, uh, in a word, was short-sightedness. He couldn't see that God was going to fulfill his promise in the future through Messiah, through Jesus. And again, that's a very important lesson for all of us when we're looking at some immediate circumstance that looks to disprove a promise of God to us, we can know that the fulfillment of that promise is going to occur, but it's going to occur in the future. Absolutely, without a doubt, will happen. God is faithful. His Word will always triumph in, in any situation. And when we recognize that, then what we then do is we have to operate by this thing called what? Called faith. And to look and say, I don't see it right now, but I know that the fulfillment to this promise is coming. And so, again, as with uh, Psalm uh, 88, uh, we need to remember that God is working on a far greater scale and a far longer timeline than sometimes uh, we can understand. And when something doesn't make sense in our lives, He's still being faithful to His promises. All we have to do is give Him time and we will see, and that is without failure. In Psalm uh, 90, we come to a psalm that extols the eternalness of God and contrasts the greatness and eternalness of God with the uh, frailty and the mortality uh, of man. You see, it's a, it is a psalm uh, written by Moses. It's ascribed to Moses. And, uh, and that makes it, it's the only one that Moses wrote that's included in the 150 Psalms. And because uh, he did write it, it makes it the oldest of all of the Psalms. Very, very likely that, that uh, Moses wrote this Psalm during the 40 years of the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness until that entire generation died because of their lack of faith to go into the promised land, their failure at uh, Kadesh Barnea. And so God said the entire generation above, uh, you know, a certain age, 20 or 30, was going to die out into that uh, wilderness, and only Joshua and Caleb uh, survived that long death march. And as they're in the midst of this a 40-year-long death march, of, of, and Moses is basically overseeing uh, that death march as this entire generation uh, of people are dying away because they counted themselves unworthy to, uh, you know, possess the promises. What Moses did is he saw this thing that he was leading people in, and he saw it as kind of a microcosm of life as a whole, that life is one big, long death march uh, for human beings. And that's, all, that's the only thing you could do. It's the only way you would view it uh, if, if God were not in the equation, if there wasn't the eternalness of God, if there wasn't a God to believe in and to trust in and to know what sense would life uh, make apart from that. It'd be just, you know, you're born, you live, you die. He who eats the most pasta wins 
And, uh, you know, and that's, that's all the, the, you know, the extent of the meaning uh, of life. And so he begins by speaking about the greatness of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place, our shelter in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are you are God. And so God is a refuge. God is a home to, uh, to uh, all who desire Him to be a home to them in every generation. And the Lord's without beginning. He's without end uh, from everlasting. And so here is uh, Moses. He's in a, living in a world that's full of toil, full of suffering, full of uh, difficulty. And, and he is blessed by the thought of an eternal God who is not caught in the same cycle that we are in. A God who is greater than, than us. And, and so, uh, and because God is greater than that cycle of death and fallenness and He has not fallen Himself, uh, he, he is a place uh, for us to go as refuge in this whole cycle of things uh, because He is the head of a different kingdom. And so the place of refuge, uh, Moses is saying here, in this fallen world, it isn't found in a location. It isn't found in a place. It's found in a relationship with God. Then he declares, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, I know I read that, so just relax and don't be worried about me. And verse 3 He begins to talk about the frailty of man. He says, You turn men to destruction and say, Return, O children of men. In other words, return to the dust. This is the cycle of man. This is death. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past and like a watch in the night. God, he's saying, God, we are bound by time, (laughs) badly bound by time. You will live outside of the realm of time. And then speaking further of the frailty of man, you carry them away uh, like a flood. They are like sleep. Uh, In the morning, they are like grass which grows up. In the morning, it flourishes and grows up. In the evening, it's cut down and it withers. And so, in other words, grass is like, uh, life is like grass. And the grass goes from being green and beautiful in the morning to being withered in the course of a day. And, and of course, he had seen and uh, millions of people that he's leading how quickly youth turns into uh, old age uh, so quickly and a witness to it. And then in verse 7, he begins to uh, speak to, uh, about uh, the, our lives as human beings. Again, he's witnessing in a kind of a dismal uh, setting but that not only are our lives short as human beings, but they're filled with troubles. He said, for we, for we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins and the light of your countenance. And so he said, life is filled with being in trouble with you. And now, if he's, if he's writing this at the time that they're wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, as a consequence of their sin, then you see kind of what it is that he's talking about. But how much of our life, uh, even, you know, the best and the most diligent of human beings or Christians, how much of our life is kind of spent a little bit in the doghouse and dealing with sin and our own failures and all of these kind of things. And so it, it's, it characterizes our lives. He said, for all our days have passed away in your wrath, and then we finish our years like a sigh. And so when the life is finished, it isn't, you know, nobody's going out, yeah, like this, you know. It's like, done, it's over, you know. That's how it goes. So, uh, so you've got all the hardship, you've got all the difficulty, and then uh, it, it all ends uh, not with a Fourth of July celebration. It ends with a sigh. The days of our lives, in, a, in case you haven't been depressed enough, the days of our lives are 70 years. And if by reason of strength they're 80 years, those are bonus years, uh, depending on your health, by the way. Um, so 
But if you, you've got the health, I mean, it, typically 70 years out was to live pretty long in those days. 80 years was like, wow. And so the days of our lives are 70 years. And if by reason of strength, they're 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow. I got to live another 10 years to experience the sorrow of the world and to labor for my food. And it is soon cut off and we fly away. And who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. And so if you've ever seen the bumper sticker, uh, it says, life is hard and then you die. That's kind of what he's saying right here in the psalm. Life is hard and and then... Uh, and then you die. And so as a result of, of the frailty of life, he prayed to the Lord uh, to teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So in our culture, what do we do? We don't number our days. We number our years, don't we? We call them birthdays. So that's what we do. We deal in years. And uh, But he tells us the wiser thing, given the frailty of life, given how short life is, is to not uh, think of life, don't value life in terms of blocks as big as years, but to treat every single day as valuable, a chance to grow closer to the Lord, to be used by the Lord. Uh, life, life is the single most valuable thing that any of us has um, in uh, that we we possess because it's finite. There is only so much of it. The Lord numbers our days, and and you don't get it back. And so wisdom is to number days, use them uh, profitably, and that's uh, that's what he's he's laying out here. And then he prays to the Lord for compassion, uh, that the Lord would bless them and bless us as human beings in the midst of this kind of uh, life as it's uh, kind of the difficulty of life. He said, return, O Lord, how long? And have compassion on your servants. O satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad according to the days uh, in which you have afflicted us the years in which you have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children and let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And so in verse 14, he he declares, uh, praise to the Lord that he would provide us with a satisfaction uh, that only comes uh, that only he can bring into a person's life. And so, Lord, would you provide that to us? So he's talking about how empty, frustrating life is, the cycle of life, the whole deal, death and this and all, the hardness and the, and the toil and the labor and all. And so what's the only solution to that, God? Who's the only one that can break in and make a life meaningful? And break out of this cycle. It's the Lord. And so he says, provide us with the satisfaction that only you can bring to a human life. And then in verse 15, essentially he declares, bring gladness and joy to our life. In other words, God, give us a a gladness and a joy that is greater than the toil and the sorrow of life. I mean, life is hard. It's a fall, the world is a fallen place. I mean, we all enjoy our frozen Snicker bar or whatever, you know, little vacation or whatever the thing might be in life. That's, I mean, there's plenty of blessings. But, I mean, apart from God, is, there's really no hope. And, and so here he, he uh, talks about bring this in, bring in a greater joy, bring in a, greater, uh, uh, bring in a joy or gladness that is greater than all of these other things. And he does it, doesn't he? That's my Christian life. <laughs> he brings in meaning, purpose, joy, gladness. It doesn't mean that, he, that all of this other stuff goes away. It rains on the just and the unjust. But he, he brings in these other things that are even greater that you look. And now as Christians, we value life. We see meaning in everything, purpose in everything, potential in everything. But only because God is a part of our lives and, and a part of, of human history. 
And then in verse 16, he essentially cries out to the Lord, Lord, make our lives meaningful. Yes, there's labor. Yes, there's hard work. There, yes, there's all of this that goes on. But make our labors make a difference for you, God, and for the kingdom of God. And God's faithful to do that. So here we are. We go to work and we work from 9 to 5 or we work from 8 to 4 or we work from 9 to 7 or whatever it might be. And we look and say, man, I mean, who notices what I do? This is so tedious. It's so monotonous. I mean, it puts food on the table, but what else does it do? And yet there's meaning and there's purpose to it because we say, Lord, bless the labor that we're involved in and make my life meaningful for the expansion of the kingdom of God. And that's God's responsibility to do, and He will do it. He'll make sure of it. And then he says, reveal all of this, verse 16, to our children. And sometimes you look and you say, who in the world would want to bring a child into this world uh, without them being raised in the meaning and the purpose and the hope and the purposes of God? And so he says, Lord, these things that get us through, make that a part of our children's lives as well. And then in verse 17, he says, Let your beauty be revealed through us to the world all around us. That's a good thing, too. Yeah, there's a lot that's going on. It's a messy old place the world is and and can be and all. But, Lord, would you use my life to show the whole wide world the beautiful thing that you will make of a human being? Would you just flash the existence of your kingdom continually in this world through what you make me into? One of my favorite sayings is that the kingdom of God is an invisible kingdom that's made visible by the obedience of his people. Every time we obey the Lord, God's kingdom flashes on the scene at that moment. And everybody's apparent, okay, that didn't come from the public schools. That didn't come from the federal government. That didn't come from the television or the pop artists or the movie stars. That didn't come from anything we've been raised in. That came from somewhere else. Where did that come from? That came from the kingdom of God. And a life that's lived in obedience to God is flashing like that all of the time. And then in verse 17... He's crying out, Lord, establish the work of our hands. In other words, make us successful for your glory. You be involved in everything that we do and what you make of our lives. We will give you the glory for that. And, of course, Moses' prayer has been wonderfully answered, I think, in its fullest way through the Lord Jesus because he's the one that gives us a life that's filled with God's love and filled with his joy and filled with meaning and gladness and glory and beauty and purpose and victory and all of these other things that are far greater than any hardship or toil or sorrow or sighing that we face in this world, and we praise the Lord for that. You take Jesus out of this world, And all you've got is a long death march. That's all life would be if you take him out of this world. But because he is in this world, everything has changed. His entrance into human history. Jesus said, these things I've spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And then in Psalm 91, this is a psalm for danger, when people are in danger. And it celebrates God as a protector. So it's interesting for the last few years, um, for those of you who keep up with this kind of thing, uh, they can't make guns fast enough for people to buy in the United States of America. They can't keep ammunition stock in the stores in the United States of America. Why? People are frightened. People are afraid. They think the government's going to break down somewhere along the way. It's going to be underfunded. It's going to be every man for themselves. And you better be armed and you better be ready. I think it was some kind of a 
a councilman or something in California. They're talking about cuts. I think down in San Bernardino I saw the article. And, uh, and the police force cut back and all of that. What, what should we do? He said something like, you know, buy a gun and learn how to use it or something like that. Created a panic in the whole city. Well, a lot of people are feeling that way. Establishing militias, this kind of thing, because things are going to fragment and go. So people deal with this is a reality, the uncertainty, the, uns, the lack of safety that people feel within the world, and this is how they respond to it. And then Psalm 91 uh, speaks of uh, where the greatest source of protection and danger is found in the whole wide world, and that is found in, in the Lord Himself. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and fortress, my God, and in Him I will trust. And when we talk about God as a refuge and a fortress, we're talking about protection. He's speaking of our need for protection and that God uh, is the one who uh, is, is able to uh, protect us. So nobody doubts the fact that we live in a dangerous world. And the world is more, most dangerous of all for Christians because we face the normal dangers that people face in life. But in many parts of the world, there's the added danger of persecution. Uh, against us for our faith in the Lord. And so we need a fortress. We need a place of refuge that's greater than all of the dangers that we face. And, of course, God offers that uh, protection to us. And then the psalmist begins to lay out what God will be to those who trust in him. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler, from those who set traps. The devil sets traps for us. People set traps for us. Businesses set traps. It's interesting to watch the whole uh, Madison Avenue thing go on and, and uh, advertising, uh, the psychology that's used, the manipulation that is used, um, how um, craftily, not just the devil, but people for the love of money uh, work to draw people into sin and then to bring them into bondage to that sin. And yet God is one who protects us from those traps and also from the perilous pestilence or disease. He will cover you with his, uh, with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. And so he'll protect us like a mother hen. Mother hen is very active in protecting uh, her chicks, and so the Lord is too. His truth shall be your shield and your buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, and that is a break in, in at night in the house, nor of the arrow that flies by day, it's speaking about crime or violence on the street, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness. And so this whole idea of walking with the Lord, that it keeps us out of places that um, sin would lead us into vulnerability, lead us into places of danger in life, even lead us into places, it talks in verse 6, about disease that walks in darkness or diseases that people contract in the darkness. So probably talking about sexually transmitted diseases and things like that. And so this walk with the Lord, it protects us from that kind of thing, nor from the destruction that lays waste uh, at noonday, talking about a sudden death that occurs because of uh, some kind of criminal activity or being in the wrong place at the wrong time. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. And so God protects us from uh, His judgment that He brings upon uh, the wicked. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling, for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample under foot. And so... Uh, God will dispatch angels to us as is necessary in order to assist us. 
And uh, in the book of Hebrews, probably the clearest revelation of God's use of angels in our lives, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, are they not ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? And I notice in this passage, it talks about, in verse 11, angels in the plural. So apparently there are some of you that require more than one angel to look after you. But God's got plenty, and, and uh, He's willing to dispatch them and, and, and use them uh, in, in our lives. And so uh, there, He tells us there, there in verse 13 that uh, their concern for protection and the angels' protection of us. It covers a very broad uh, range of dangers in life, everything from dashing our foot against a stone to uh, confronting a a life-threatening circumstance. Now, it doesn't mean that we will never die as Christians or will never face hardship as God's people, but what it does mean is that our lives are indestructible until our ministries are over and uh, God's purposes for our lives are completed. But when death does occur or some difficult circumstance does occur in our life, we realize it's not because of some lack of power on God's part, but to know that it's a part of God's plan for our lives, that He's going to work together for uh, our good and work together for His glory. All that's demonstrated in Jesus. So angels were very actively engaged in his earthly ministry, but it didn't mean that he was going to escape the purposes for which he was born into the world, and that was to die a a very terrible death upon that cross in order to provide us with the forgiveness of our sins. Now, we recognize verses 11 and 12 from the New Testament Gospels because they're quoted by the devil in his temptation of Jesus uh, following his fasting and being in the wilderness for 40 days, uh, following his water baptism at the beginning of his public ministry. And, uh, and the devil came to him and uh, uh, cried, took Jesus, we're told, Matthew chapter 4, up to the holy city in uh, Jerusalem, took him to the pinnacle of the temple, the highest place there in that area, said to him, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. And then he quotes this passage, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now that's interesting that Satan would commit those two verses to memory. Why would he commit those two verses to memory except he knew them to be true continually by coming against God's people and continually running up against an angelic number, either one angel or more angels that resisted his attempts to do damage to God's people. And so he knew the verse very, very well and God's faithfulness uh, to that verse. I think it's also important to realize that the devil... Uh, knows the Bible very, very well. He's able even to quote it. But when he does quote the Bible, it's always out of context or he misapplies it, which is what he does with Jesus in the gospel. The promise that is being given here in Psalm 91 is never given by God so that we can become presumptuous. We're going to say to our friends, hey, listen, I'm a Christian, you're not a Christian, and I want to let you see something that will make you realize that my God is true, and you go up on top of a mountain and throw yourself off. So where were the angels? They're right in front of you because now you're in heaven. (laughs) the, The promise was never given so that we could tempt God, put ourselves needlessly in danger, and, and force God's hand in, in that kind of a way. But it was a promise that God would protect us as we just lived a life of simple obedience to Him and submission to His will. Jesus responded uh, to the temptation by accurately quoting a passage of Scripture from uh, the book, uh, from the law that emphasizes uh, obedience. He quotes, every time He quoted, uh, a passage to respond to the temptation of the devil was always out of the same book, out of the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, the emphasis or theme of the book is obedience. And so the Lord said to the devil, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. In other words, Satan exposed 
Jesus exposed Satan's quotation of the verses going beyond God's intent into uh, sinning, uh, sinfully uh, tempting God. And then Jesus did exactly what his psalm, uh, this psalm tells us to do, and that is he submitted himself to the Father's will and to the Father's purposes for his life, in essence saying to the devil, he is my refuge and my fortress, in him I will uh, trust. And then God himself in verse 14, he confirms the truthfulness of what the psalmist has been saying about him. He says, because he... Uh, those of us who love the Lord, because he has set his love upon me, God said, therefore I will deliver him. And I will set him on high because he has known my name. And he shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my Salvation, And so God comes in and says, everything the psalmist has said that I would be to you, I will be that to you. Now, uh, before we leave the psalm, I would be very negligent not to point out uh, one very major thing concerning, uh, concerning it and how it applies to our life. The promises that are made on God's behalf in this psalm and that God confirms, affirms to be true related to himself toward us, those are not unconditional promises. They are directed to uh, the child of God whose life is marked by three very specific things that he lays out in the psalm itself. And so the person who can claim these promises from uh, God, the fullness of these promises, is also described in the psalm. It doesn't do me any good to know that God is a refuge and a fortress if I don't make him my refuge and my fortress. And the psalmist tells us how uh, we need to do that. And he tells us, first of all, in verse 1, that the person that can fully claim these promises, first of all, they dwell in the secret place of the Most High. So that sounds wonderful. Dwell in the secret place of the Most High. I wish I understood what that meant so I could dwell there. What does it mean to dwell in the secret place of the Most High? The secret place of the Most High was the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and in the temple. And it represented the very presence of God among people in the world and specifically God's people. It was where he chose to meet with his people. And, and so it's, it, it is that place that God had chosen for his people to come and to meet with him. And thus the person who dwells in the secret place of the Most High is the man or the woman who desires or enjoys intimate, secret, unseen communion with God and, and desires that above everything else in life. So they enjoy this unbroken kind of relationship uh, with the Lord. So it's the kind of person that's always drawing close to the Lord, as close as they can, this side of heaven. We would say they have a personal relationship with, with, uh, with God. And so these promises are made to a person who's just living a quiet, a life of just a quiet personal relationship with the Lord, and they're walking close to Him. The second characteristic of the person that can claim these promises is found in verse 9, that this person not only walks close to God, but also dwells in God. They've made God their dwelling place. What does that mean? Our dwelling place is where we live. It's where we settle down and make ourselves at home in, in life. And so this speaks of an unbroken continuance in a relationship with the Lord. Not only intimacy with God, but there's a, a, a perseverance, a permanence about this, this relationship. There's a certain kind of Christian. They're, they're on their way to heaven. They're going to be in heaven one day, uh, but they live as far away from God as they can when everything's going great in their life, and then when things get difficult, they do a mad 100-meter dash back to God to get close to Him again, 
And the problem with that kind of a person is in these periods in their life where they are, this relationship with God is on again, off again, on again, off again. In the off again periods, they're putting themselves in needless danger in life. They're putting themselves in situations where uh, they can be taken advantage of by the devil or by other people. And so this is the kind of person who... Uh, walks with God when things are going good, when things are going bad. Nothing really moves them from that. This is where they live out their life. They dwell in God. And Jesus spoke of that as abiding in Him. And how do we abide in Him? Simply by obeying His Word. Look at all of the spiritual warfare and all of the danger that just simply obeying God's Word Uh, keeps us away from. It's amazing. You just just walk with the Lord, you obey His Word, and there's there's a whole world we don't even know exists, and it's wonderful. One of the problems that I have is I'm... How old am I now? I'm 57, almost 58 years old. Somebody get me a cane. I've walked with the Lord for a while now. So they, you got all this stuff where you say, well, you got this guy, and then you get a little bit older, and you got to bring the young guy in and everything because they understand a little bit more about the culture, and they're a little hipper and cooler. So, so I went out this week, and I got a tattoo. Let me just show it to you. Right here. <laughs> Don't be surprised. You see me next week. I'll come out and be all tatted out. I'll have the brownest hair this side of Mick Jagger and do a little face work on things, you know, get it all done and, and all. So you got to bring in somebody, you know, or whatever. they got to relate and someone in the culture. And, and I go, sometimes people th- say, well, I mean, why, why don't you use more illustrations, period, but why don't you use more contemporary illustrations? Well, not everybody knows Opie. And Barney. And I have to confess, I mean, it's a challenge for me. I don't know how to stay current with half the world that goes on around me and still be obedient to the Word of God. So you lose it. And then God's got to take care of it. Well, there are so many things I don't have to worry about. I don't have to... I, I will never have to worry about anything that happens in terms of drunkenness or sexual diseases or gunshots or violence or fistfights or anything that happens when a person goes out clubbing. It's just not going to happen. I didn't do it when I was 18. Or 22, I'm not going to do it now. But you see my point. Just simple abiding in God, obeying His Word, the safety of it. I love the passage, and in, in I'm, I'm wrapping up. Relax. Well, that passage in Isaiah that talks about the highway of holiness. And basically it says, it, it says that a simpleton is safe on that road. You don't have to be a genius. You don't have to be brilliant. You don't have to even be smart to be safe in this world. All it takes is understanding what does God say and then live there. Obey this Bible and it puts us on a path that leads us away from only God knows what and keeps us protected from only God knows what. And I'm happy to remain ignorant related to that. And then the third characteristic of this kind of person that can claim these promises is in verse 14, that that person, the person that has set their love upon God. And this is the idea that the kind of person that doesn't maintain intimacy and permanence in their relationship with God is some kind of like a grinding obligation I have to love God. 
but they do they walk with God, they obey God, they abide in God, they grow in their relationship with God because they love God. So we have a saying says, don't try talking me out of it. My heart's set on it. Once a person says that, we know, okay, it's no good. They're going to do what they're going to do. But the thing can be carried over into a relationship with the Lord. Don't, don't try to talk me out of it. My heart is set on it, growing in Him, walking with Him, experiencing this life that He has called us to. And so our God is worthy of being loved by us above everything and anything else in this whole wide world. And this person does that. And because we love the Lord more than anything else in life, that steers us out of all kinds of trouble as well. And so the world is a dangerous place. It really is a very, very dangerous place. And it's getting more and more dangerous on all levels Physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, this is a dangerous place to live in. And all of those things need protection in our life. And where is the place that we can find safety? A bomb shelter. Ammo and guns. I'm not saying not to do those things. But that's not the ultimate place of safety. According to Psalm 91, the safest place in the whole wide world to be is in an intimate, personal relationship with God, an obedient relationship with God, and then a loving relationship with God, loving Him above all else and everything else. That's the point that the psalmist is making. And it was true 3,000 years ago, and it's true today. Let's stand together and we'll pray.